There is a cathedral in Milan, Italy, which has a remarkable entrance. In fact, there are three sets of doors that you must pass through before you enter into the chapel. And above each of these doors is an archway with an inscription written. Above the first doorway, you will find these words, all which pleases is but for a moment. The second doorway has these words, all which troubles is but for a moment. But above the third doorway and the largest of the three, these words are written, that only is important, which is eternal. That only is important, which is eternal. This is something that I think that we ought to consider, the things that are in eternal. We approach the summer, and we are busy and active. We're involved in all kinds of activities. We have just come out of hibernation. It's time to cut loose. We're going to go to parties. We're going to go to the cottage. We're going to be involved in all kinds of activities. But it is also essential that we remember in the busyness of life, as we live out our lives and as we read the papers and watch television and see all that occurs in the world, that there is such a thing as eternity which is to come. The evangelist John was supremely concerned with this subject of eternity and particularly the theme of eternal life. John begins in the prologue of his gospel where he tells us regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that in him was life. And the life was the light of men in John 1 verse 4. And he uses life interchangeably with eternal life. Towards the conclusion of the gospel, in John 20 and verse 31, he also gives us the purpose for which he is written. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life. John was concerned with the subject of eternal life. In fact, some would argue that this was a chief premise, the main thesis of this gospel, the subject of eternal life. So prominent is eternal life in the gospel of John, it occurs 17 times, this concept. And it functions as an equivalent or the equivalent for the kingdom of God, which appears in the other Gospels. One of the places of the 17 where eternal life is used significantly by John is in this chapter 17 of the Gospel, a chapter which many have come to know as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The prayer as a body 
divides into three sections. Verses 1 to 5 describes the prayer of Jesus for himself. Verses 6 to 19 contains the prayer of Jesus for his disciples. And then the final section, verses 20 to 26, record the prayer of Jesus for future believers. What I want us to do is to look at the first part of the chapter, our Lord's prayer for himself in verses 1 to 5, where the theme of eternal life occurs twice. What I wanted to do is to try to flesh out the import of this concept for our understanding this morning. We read in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Eternal life, twice in the section. What can we say about this concept as used by John in this gospel and particularly in the chapter? First, I want you to consider that eternal life as John presents it is the present possession of believers. That's the first thing I want us to contemplate. That eternal life is the present possession of believers. But having said that, you're going to want me to try to define this. A very difficult concept, eternal life, to define. Let me tell you what we must not take away from eternal life. First, eternal life does not denote mere ceaseless existence. It is not just talking about living on and on and on without ending. That's not what it means in the first place. In fact, the Greeks recognized that eternal life, living on and on and on, was not necessarily a blessing. The fact that you may have the ability to live forever, the Greeks said was not a blessing. Not necessarily a blessing. And they tell a story to illustrate this. The story of Aurora, the goddess of dawn, who fell in love with a man called Titanus. And Zeus, the chief god, agreed to give Aurora any gift for the man she loved, Titanus. So because of Aurora's request, he promised that he would give Titanus any gift that Aurora required. And so she asked that Titanus might live forever, that he might live on and on and on. But she forgot to ask that he should never grow old. And so Zeus gave Titanus the gift of eternal life. But the longer he lived, the older he became. And he lived and lived and lived and became older and more decrepit, 
decrepit, and eventually he became a tremendous burden. You see, just living on and on and on is not necessarily a blessing. In fact, the New Testament commentator, William Barclay, where we would disagree with him in some areas of his theology, he nevertheless says that eternal life, strictly speaking, could refer to hell or heaven. Thus, when the scriptures talk about eternal life, they, they do not in the first place mean one lives on and on in an endless existence. Does not in the first place refer to that. And I want you to understand I talk about the first place. What then is eternal life? It is not merely a reference to eternal duration, but it refers to a special, in fact, a unique quality of life. Eternal life refers to a quality of life. When you ask the ancient Hebrew people what is life, they would define life as true life, as blessedness, as a state of blessedness a state of well-being, a state of happiness, a state of fellowship with God and prosperity. That for them was the true life. To be in a state of blessedness. Now, Scripture describes God as the only blessed God. That is, the God who is supremely rich and happy, blessed. Scripture also describes God as Olam, the everlasting God. So that because God himself is the blessed God, the God who we read in John 5 and verse 26, who, who has life in himself, because God is life in himself or has life in himself, and the source of life and the source of all blessing, and because God is eternal, so because God is life, because God is blessed, and because God is eternal in his being, eternal life, and I want you to hear me clearly, refers to nothing less than the life of God himself. To share in eternal life is to share in God's own life, God's own blessed and supremely happy life. That, my friend, is what eternal life is all about. Not merely endless duration. It is to share in God's own life. And this eternal life of which our Lord speaks must be perceived as a gift of God. In chapter 17, 1 to 5, Jesus has now finished the farewell discourses that we have in John from chapter 14 to chapter 16 where he speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit who reveal all things to the disciples. And he reminds them that their time on earth will be marked by suffering. But he tells them to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. Having finished these discourses, these addresses to the disciples, Jesus begins to pray. And he lifts his eyes towards heaven and address his father. And he says, the hour has come, the appointed time in God's calendar for him to go to the cross has now arrived. He's in the upper room in chapter 17 with the disciples. 
under the shadow of the cross. He says, Lord, the momentous hour has now arrived. The cross now looms. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you. The glory that Jesus is seeking is not, firstly, the glory of the cross. For as you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus perceives the cross where he's lifted up, in a, in a sense, in a, a, a double entendre, because the cross is a place of humiliation. He's lifted up on the cross. But in a sense, the cross is also a lifting up for Christ because it is a place of glory. There he fulfills God's will. There he bears our sins away. There our Lord Jesus Christ shows his obedience. The cross is glory. He's lifted up in a physical sense, but he's also lifted up also in glory on the cross. But when he requests that God shall glorify him, he's not now speaking about the cross. In fact, if you go down to verse 5, you will see the kind of glory that he's asking for. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory that the Lord Jesus Christ is asking the Father to give him is the unique, pre-existent glory that he had with God before the world was created and before he came into the world in the Incarnation. It's the glory that is set aside, the glory that is cloaked and covered by his humanity. He's asking God that he should give to him the glory that he had from eternity with him. Now, Jesus gives the basis upon which he asks for preexistent glory. In verse 2, he says, As you have given him, that is to Christ, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Our Lord Jesus is saying, Lord, give me the glory which I had with you because I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And verse 2 tells you the work that God gave him. The work that God gave to Christ is that God has given him authority, exousia, he has given him the power and the right over all flesh. And in particular, God has given him the power over all flesh that he might give eternal life to all the Father has given him. You see, eternal life is a gift. God has given him the authority that he might give eternal life to all the Father has given him. Perhaps one of the clearest passages in the scriptures teaching us that eternal life is a gift is found in Romans 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is a divine gift. But eternal life, and this is where I want us to come, eternal life is a present gift. It is something that we enjoy here and now. This is a distinctive teaching of John and of his gospel. Because within first century Palestinian Judaism, there was always this 
duality in the minds of the rabbis. They viewed time as two parts. There is this life, a life which is through a veil of tears and sorrows. And then there is a life to come, a life of blessedness, a life of joy. And these two lives, these two entities are separate. But for John, eternal life does not merely refer to the life which is to come. Eternal life has come in the present. But eternal life can be known here and now, that one can enter into life here in this world. One does not have to wait until the coming of Christ. Eternal life is a present gift. Jesus Christ says he has finished the work which God has given him. The work which God has given him is that he may give life to those whom the Father has given him. It means that the disciples here, here and now, even before Christ has gone to the cross, receive the gift of eternal life. John chapter 5 and verse 24 teaches us that eternal life is a present gift. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. The person who hears and the person who believes is the person who he says who has present tense, eternal life. They do not need to wait until the great day of the Lord. In fact, he says, they have eternal life and that they have passed from death to life. There the verb changes to the perfect. They now have eternal life because they have passed. This occurred in the past and continues now. And it will continue in the future. That's the sense of the, of the perfect tense. It refers to something that is ongoing, but also will continue in the future without change. You see, eternal life is a present gift. They have eternal life. They have passed from death, from eternal death to eternal life. And eternal life, then, which is a gift that believers possess now, is bound up with the language of justification. Because central to this verse, verse 24 of John 5, where Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And then he says this, significantly, and shall not come into judgment, meaning will not come into condemnation. The one who has eternal life shall not come into judgment or condemnation. If one is not condemned, one is justified, one is declared righteous. You see, the reason we have eternal life, it is because we have been justified, we have been declared righteous by God. And therefore we have passed from death to life. And so there is a, a link, a connection between the present possession of eternal life and our justified status in the sight of God. In a sense then, for the Christian... We have already received the verdict at the throne of God's judgment. That verdict, which is reserved for the end of time, 
has now come to us in this life where we now know that we have been declared not guilty. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We have received the eternal verdict in time that when we stand before God, we will never be condemned. And it is precisely because God will not condemn us in and through Christ that we have eternal life. But I want to make one point clear regarding this present nature of eternal life. That though eternal life is a present possession of believers, it is God's present gift to his elect. You notice in John chapter 17 verse 2, Jesus says that the Father has given to him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Given him. I grew up in an Armenian context. Didn't even believe in the doctrine of election. Until my own personal journey through the Gospel of John. I was struck by this phrase that is repeated in John. Those that have been given to me. And I thought as a young boy, if there were people who were given to Christ, and not all people belong to him, then there are some who were not given the doctrine of election. Here, John reminds us that those who have eternal life are those that have been given to him, all those who have been given to him by the Father. It refers to those who are the elect, those whom God has chosen to be his own. In fact, this kind of teaching continues in chapter 17. For those who have been given to Christ, Christ says he has manifested or revealed God to them. In John 17, verse 6. So in the same chapter, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, those who have been given to Christ, he has revealed God to them, and it is for these alone that he prays. So he says in verse 9 of chapter 17, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It is these who have been given to him that he says he will lose none of them. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Those who have eternal life, they have it now as believers. It's God's gift in this world, and it's God's gift to them because they are God's elect. Not because they deserve it, not because they have worked for it, but because God in his grace has chosen to bestow grace and mercy and kindness and favor upon his people. Secondly, if eternal life is God's present gift to his people, then eternal life consists of a personal knowledge of the true God and Jesus Christ. So if you now go down to verse 3, having in his prayer revealed that God has given him authority 
to give eternal life to those that God has given him, Jesus moves in verse 3 to define eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not only a present possession of God's people, but it, is, it consists of a personal knowledge of the true God. This is eternal life, that you may know God. You know, the, the scriptures do not say that you receive eternal life by growing in knowledge of God, but that eternal life is to be conceived as knowing God. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But what is it to know God? If eternal life is knowing God, if to share in the life of God is to know God, what does it mean to know him? I want to suggest three things. First, knowing God involves intellectual apprehension or understanding of God, his person and work. To know God requires that one accepts as true all that we have in the scriptures revealed about God. Scripture teaches us that God is the sovereign creator, that he's the one who rules over the universe, that he's king and lord, and that he guides providence, and all things that occur in this world occur under the ages, under the control and the dominion of one king, our king in heaven, our God. It teaches us that this God is invisible and powerful, that this is a God of wisdom and knowledge, a God of grace and truth. But John describes this God as Father. Some 104 times he, he refers to, to God as the Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Father, the one who gives people to Jesus Christ, the one who draws them to him, his Father. And anyone who will know God must know him first with an intellectual apprehension of his person. We must know as, him as he's revealed in the scriptures. But central to the idea of knowing God is not merely intellectual comprehension, but personal relationship. That is, to know God involves a personal relationship with God. You know, one, one might know a lot about uh, you know, our, our favorite basketball player. And you, you, you may have somebody on the Raptors that you think is great and you, that's your favorite player. You may know his shoe size. You may know what he eats as his most favorite meal. You may even know what he calls his pet fish. You know a lot of stuff about him. But that does not mean that you know him the way his wife and children know him. And the difference is not merely a matter of degree, that is that they know him more than you do or I do, but it is a difference in kind. It's a different kind of knowledge. One kind of knowledge is merely factual. The other is relational. It is knowledge in a relationship. And when the scriptures say, when our Lord reminds us, this is eternal life, 
that they may know thee, the only true God. He's speaking about this second kind of knowledge, a relational knowledge, a knowledge that is gleaned and gathered and experienced in an intimate relationship with God. This is true if you trace the use of knowledge in the Old Testament and the verb yade or the, the noun yade to know or knowledge of God. When, it, you, when, when the Old Testament speaks of God knowing, it often refers to more than just intellectual understanding or cognizance. We read in Genesis that Adam knew his wife. Well, we, we know that he knew her. He knew what she looked like and what her name was and all kinds of things about her. But the text there says he knew her, and it meant that he had sexual relationship. You see, knowledge is personal. The Apostle Paul bears this out when he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11, he says, I want to know him. I want to know him in a special way. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know a fellowship of his suffering and being conformed to his death. And when our Lord Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, he's talking about this second category of knowing, a personal relationship. And this personal relationship is distinguished by two elements. The true knowledge of God involves love. You see, those who know God must love him. Scripture joins knowing and loving. We think of the book of Amos chapter 3 and verse 2 where the prophet, the Lord says to, to the people of Israel, and you only of all the families of the earth have I known. Now God knew all the nations because he has made them. But when he said to Israel, you only of all the families of the earth have I known, it means have I loved. You see, where there is true knowledge of God, there must be a love for God. Secondly, true knowledge of God, which is personal, not only includes love, but obedience. So that in John chapter 12, Jesus, when he talks to the audience and tells them that the words which he spoke to them have come from God, and he says, and I know that this command is everlasting life. John 12, 50, this command the command to believe in Jesus Christ, the command to do God's will by believing in the message of Christ. This is everlasting life, that the one who believes, the one who obeys God's commandment, that becomes everlasting life. You see, anyone who is in personal relationship with God will love God, and they not only will love God, but they will be obedient to him. How, how could we know God? How could we have a personal revelation of God and yet not want to obey him? This is eternal life. Eternal life requires a personal knowledge of God, involves a personal knowledge of God, which this knowledge consists of love and obedience. But thirdly, knowing God requires a transforming encounter with Christ. For the verse tells us in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the writer places that there, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that you and I may know that the only way we can know God is through the mediator of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 18, we have been told that no man has ever seen God, but only the be only begotten who's in the bosom of the Father, he has unbosomed him, he has exegeted him, he has revealed him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, Jesus could say these words, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You see, eternal life is knowing God in a personal way, but a personal knowledge of God comes from a real encounter with the living Christ. Christ must quicken our hearts. He must enlighten our eyes. He must indwell us. We must be joined in union with him. In other words, we must be regenerated because only as we are regenerated in Christ, even as we are joined to him and in a particular relationship with him, do we come to know God. In short, one can never know God except that individual is in a personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. I've argued two things. Let me recap. First, that eternal life is a present possession of all believers. Secondly, that eternal life consists of a personal knowledge of God, a personal knowledge which involves love and obedience towards God. But I want to come to the third major point, and it is this, that eternal life refers to perpetual communion with God. You remember when I began, I said that eternal life must not be conceived in the first place as mere endless duration. You remember I said that? In the first place. I said that because I was preparing you for this point. That eternal life does mean what it says, eternal life. Living on and on forever in that special relationship with God. In fact, the term eternal means of the age to come, of the age to come. You and I, already in this world, have begun to taste the power of the age to come. We have eternal life here. But scripture makes plain to us that this that we now have is not all that God has promised for us, that there is more to come. That there will be a time when we are raised to life, in John 5, 28, 29, and all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We are going to enter into consummate life, eternal life, in its fullest, when we are raised, when Jesus Christ returns. This is a real and a permanent state that cannot be cut short or destroyed by death. When you may ask me, if eternal life then is a present possession, but it is also a future reality, what does that future reality of eternal life look like? I want to just point out two things. And, and then, of course, this is not original. Older theologians spoke about this often. They speak of eternal life as consisting of vision or what is called the beatific vision. You want to know what eternal life is like? It is the beatific vision. 
And there you find it in John 1, John 3, verse 2, where John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And here it is. For we shall see him as he is. If you ask me what is future eternal life like, it is the sight of God. We shall see him face to face. Now we know that God in his essence is spirit. And therefore, we will not see God in a physical sense. That is a father in a physical sense. But we will see him in Jesus Christ. We will see him in the person of the son who took flesh. And when he went to heaven, he did not relinquish his body. He took it with him, a glorified body. We shall see God in Christ. In fact, the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. It is called beatific vision because the vision of Christ that we will have or the vision of God that we will have will be a transforming vision. We shall see him and we shall be like him. In other words, when we see him, we shall be like him. Then we shall have glorified bodies like his. Our minds and our desires, indeed all our appetites and our faculties will be perfected. We will be made fit for eternity. We shall see him. But that, that eternal life to come consists of fruition. And with fruition, the older theologian meant fulfillment. You see, eternal life is the fulfillment of the things that we expect. It's a life of blessedness. It is the highest enjoyment of God. Here on earth, we taste fellowship with God. But in heaven, we enter into the abode of God, into an idyllic state that the Bible depicts as paradise. We enter into the joy of the Lord. And therefore, the psalmist could say in Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What awaits the believer is the consummation of our hope. It is the consummation of our joy. That is everlasting life. When we will see God and we shall enjoy God and be enjoyed by God himself. An American tourist was visiting Poland. And he went to the home of the Polish rabbi, Hosfet Chain. And he was surprised by the sparse, setting in which Chaim lived. He lived in only one room. His house was only one room. And in it he had a few books. And he had a cot and a table. And the tourist was taken aback and he said to him, where is your furniture? And Chaim responded to him, where is yours? And the tourist was shocked. He says, mine? But I'm only a visitor here. I'm just passing through. And Chaim responded, so am I. We become so immersed in our culture that often we forget that we too are just passing through. That this life, though we are wedded to it, we live and breathe the atmosphere that is around us. 
we have the aspirations of ordinary men. But we must understand that we are living and longing for that which is extraordinary for eternity. That fundamentally we are to live our lives with eternity and eternal life in view. Most of life, men are seeking the good life. We want to have good jobs, a good education. There's nothing wrong with that. We want to make money, and we want to live in comfort. It's the good life that is fueling most of what occurs in our life, in our world. I believe that behind this monstrous debate on assisted suicide is still the good life. Because you see, if we become old and we become sick and we are in pain and we are no longer enjoying the good life, we want our lives to be terminated. It's a terrible sin. The last time I checked, murder is sin. It's still sin. Whether it's done by somebody else or done by yourself, it is still sin. What we must seek is not the good life, but eternal life. And seeking money and pleasure and fame, we are seeking the things that do not really ultimately matter. To seek these things is to lack true ambition. We must seek bigger and higher things. Eternal life. Because you see, eternal life is God's life. There can be nothing greater to which you and I can aspire than to aspire to share in God's own life. What can be compared to enter into the life of God, to live eternity with God in his presence? There is nothing else in this universe that comes close. And it is this that impels the Apostle Paul. He says that he's going to labor, that if by any means, if by any means he might attain to the resurrection of life, he strove, he struggled, he pressed, he climbed upward because he was longing for resurrection life. He was longing for this eternal life, the life of God himself. This life is worth living for, and it's worth dying for. Because as Edward Lee, one of my favorite theologians said, this life of God is a satisfying life. And we read in the scriptures in Psalm 17, verse 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. All that we need will be supplied. God is a sufficient good for himself and he's sufficient for us. And when we see him, when we are brought into his presence, when we share in the life of God in the consummation, that will be a satisfying life. It is also a glorious life. It is a life with a glorified God, life with a glorified saints, life with a glorious Christ. The book of Revelation describes this life of God in pictorial terms. It tells us that in the new heavens and in the new earth there will be no temple because the Lamb 
and the Almighty God are its temple. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sun nor moon, because the Lamb and God Almighty are its light. This life for which we strive, this life that we long for and yearn to be a part of in glory, is a glorious living in the presence of the glorious God, shining like stars forever with God. This life is a glorious life. It is a most joyful life, we are reminded. And the book of Revelation tells you how glorious and joyful this life is. It tells you that in this consummated life, there will be no more sea, because in Revelation, sea symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes division. It symbolizes isolation. So God will remove that. We are reminded in chapter 21 of Revelation, there will be no more pain, for God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, for there shall be no more death or sorrow nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You live in this veil of tears, you are going to experience sorrow. You live in this world, even now, some of you here are going through hardships, because this is a world of pain, and there is no escaping it here and now. But we are going to another life, to eternal life, where there will be no death, and there will be no sickness. And there will be no disappointment or failure. There will be no hurt. There will be no sin. In fact, we will receive that call from the Lord. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. You see, eternal life is a most joyous life. And for that reason, we must strive that we enter into life, eternal life. This life, can only, however, be experienced in Jesus Christ. He says in his words that I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the bread of life. And John in 1 John says, that which we have heard that which we have seen with our eyes and we have handled with our hands concerning the word of life. He says, the life was manifested and we declare to you eternal life. He called Jesus Christ eternal life. You need to know that if you want to have the life of God, if you're to sheer into that life, you must come to Jesus Christ. It is by his own blood that he purchased eternal life for us who are sinners. He says, I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And it is because of this, because he lays down his life for the sheep in John 10, he can say, therefore, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. You see, because he bled for us, because he bought eternal life with his blood, he can give it to us as his gift. The only way to receive it is by faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
And I will raise him up at the last day, in John 6, 54. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Graphic descriptions. But it, be, it means simply that one has to rely completely upon the death of Jesus Christ, upon his work on the cross, as that which alone saves. How do you re- receive eternal life? You don't work your way into it. You don't wish for it. But you run to Christ. You tell him that you are a sinner. You tell him that you have sinned against heaven and you do not deserve to be his child. And if you go looking to him and resting on him, he will forgive you. He will give you life, eternal life. It's only received by a look. A look directly to Christ. I want you to know that I have nothing to give you this morning than Christ. The only wealth, the only benefit that there is this morning is in presenting Christ to you because when you have him, you have eternal life. I wonder if you've embraced him. I wonder if you have turned away from yourself and from your sins. You want eternal life? You must know God in Jesus Christ. And finally, having come to know him by faith, by resting, looking, trusting him and his death, You now have eternal life. But listen, those of us who have eternal life must walk in holiness of life. Holiness of life doesn't give you eternal life. It's only a proof that you have received it. Anyone who longs for heaven and longs to be with Christ must also flee sin and pursue Christ. May God bless you and help you today for Jesus' sake. Amen.